We're in a series on Philippians right now, and we're in chapter 2, so let me go ahead and just read our passage, and let's kind of engage our, our hearts and our minds here. Starts at verse 3 today. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, right now we pause and acknowledge that we believe this is your word, and so I pray that its power to speak to us would be manifest and you would help me, Lord, as I convey this word to do it effectively in a way that we can relate to but really portrays the truth of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Glory. What does that mean? What does glory mean? It's kind of a churchy word sometimes. It gets thrown around a lot. Glory, hallelujah. You know, <laughs> glory to God on high. You know, the yeah, and and I'm, I'm a worship leader, so I can pick on our worship team as one of them a little bit. But you know those prayers when, like, we need to pause and pray because there's this awkward transitional moment, and, and, but you don't know what you're going to pray. So you're kind of like, uh, God, you're so glorious, and Lord, the sunshine is glorious. So, uh, and Jesus, uh, thank you for Jesus, Lord, and glory. But I wonder if we think much about the meaning of that word, the, of glory. What is it? We see, the, we see beauty as a kind of glory. We look and we say, man, the way the sunlight hits this waterfall at just the right time of day is, is glorious. Or we see an athlete who performs an amazing feat and has achieved a kind of glory that will forever go down in history for that sport and I think we're drawn to that kind of glory. It's kind of a draw for all of us. After all, why do uh, sporting events, why do the professional sports leagues gain so much revenue and attention and so much energy? Mankind has always been attracted to glory. We covet glory. We long for glory. We create alternative realities in the form of video games where we can live vicariously through an avatar of ourselves and, and build ourselves up to a position of glory that makes us feel a certain way. The Old Testament word for glory is derived from a word that simply means heaviness or weight. It speaks to ascribing a certain significance to someone or something or an idea. And we still kind of talk this way today a little bit. When we speak of a matter of extreme significance, we say these are weighty matters, right? Or, or someone who seems to be using their authority to promote their own glory a lot, we say they're throwing their weight around, right? Uh, it's, we, we still talk this way a little bit. The New Testament word for glory, doxa, basically refers to the, the value of something as determined by personal opinion. It's, it's to be regarded highly or of, of, of value. 
and, and so I think we can relate to both of these ideas of glory because every one of us, while we might hear that word and, and feel like we're kind of distant from it, it's actually very close to home because all of us want to feel a sense of significance. All of us want to know that uh, our opinion has weight and matters. And we want to be regarded highly by people around us. These are matters of personal glory. And I believe um, that that is something that connects with all of us. Especially as fathers. Uh, it's Father's Day, and so we can kind of chime in on this. I think that as dads, we tend to desire to be taken seriously by our wives, by our kids. In fact, the book Love and Respect was, was built off of this quote from Ephesians 5 or 6 that says, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. And basically, if you do a study on, on men or masculinity, um, we basically interpret love through the language of respect. Whereas wives definitely deserve and desire to be respected, but there's a different love language oftentimes. It comes through um, gifts or words of affirmation or different kinds of touch and so on. And, and so this is something that matters to men. When our kids disrespect us, it gets under our skin, not just because our kids are disrespecting us, but they're trampling on our glory, right? They're, 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 they're getting under our skin, you know, and so we react to this in a big way. And there seems to be two kinds of people in the world. You have the kind of people, whether it's a boss or a coach or a father, who, who draw respect and glory to themselves naturally. People just gravitate to these kinds of people, and they seem to accumulate a level of glory or respect and dignity. But then there's another kind of people who might hold a position of, of a boss or a coach or a father but they try to reach out and force that glory for themselves. They try to take it for themselves. And you know the difference between those kinds of people. You've seen the two kinds of people. We probably don't even realize it, but at times we are all, at one point or another, both kinds of people. Right? There are times when, when we uh, get our hackles up because we feel like our reputation is being trampled a little bit. Our glory is in question. Our opinion doesn't seem to matter, and so we get defensive. Okay. My challenge to all of us, to fathers in this room especially, is to lead to the glory of God. Because it's precisely in the pursuit of our own glory that we lose it. You can have a title, but can you really have a name? What's the difference? What's in a name? How do you earn a name? How do you gain glory and respect? The scripture says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. A little bit of background context. Paul is writing to this church from prison. His primary concern is that this church will be able to stand on their own two feet in unity with or without him. So he says, whether I'm gone or can come and see you, I want to see or hear that you are standing united. And he breaks that down in two ways, standing and striving, standing together in your identity as a new humanity in the spirit of God, and striving together under one purpose, one mission. This is how unity happens, through proactive standing firm and striving together in unity. 
But there are things that destroy unity or threaten that unity. And he spoke, and we spoke to it mostly last week, to external factors that can threaten unity and also internal factors that can threaten unity. Uh, the external factors would come in the form of opposition or persecution or suffering. And his point that we really spoke to a lot was, these are not signs of your defeat or your destruction, but actually your salvation of God's work in you, yourself. But there's also internal things that threaten unity within a group. And the one he speaks to today is what we could call empty glory, the pursuit of empty glory. What will destroy unity from the inside out? Empty glory. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And the word conceit, it's a good translation, but the Greek is kinodoxian. Kino meaning empty, doxa meaning glory. What does that mean? What is empty glory? Saying do nothing out of the pursuit of empty glory. So what is this one internal factor that is sure to destroy unity? The pursuit of empty glory. In any organization, as soon as we begin to make decisions out of the need to uphold a personal glory, the unity of the organization is threatened, right? You might have a good idea, but if your idea tramples on your boss's idea, but you know you have a better idea, you might not share your idea, right? Because, because you're, you might be trampling on your boss's glory, Right? But, but this is actually going to hurt the unity of the organization, right? When you come to the table and someone else's idea is better than yours, but you start to defend it anyway, why do we do that? Empty glory, right? We're holding on to our empty glory. As parents, what's really going on inside when we use our authority to discipline? Is it personal or is it really for the child's best interest? Is it the good of the child and the family as a primary motive? Or did that son or daughter just get under your skin and you're feeling defensive, like your image, your name has to be upheld? And let me tell you, we're blind to this. We don't see it in ourselves most of the time. But our spouses usually do, if we ask them. So Paul is saying, as you're standing together and as you're striving together, as soon as personal ambition and ego and pride becomes a factor, as soon as my argument becomes about my looking smart or looking good, as soon as I'm feeling personally defensive over whatever the conversation is because of some past investment I have in the issue, my empty glory is disrupting unity. Potentially. And yet, this is the most common natural thing for human beings. Right? This is very real. This is a struggle and a constant temptation for everyone. Right? No one is exempt from this. So how do you get out from under it? Do we simply sacrifice ourselves and all of our dignity and desires at the needs of the altar of the group? Or do, as individuals, do we actually have some value that needs to be upheld? And I believe that we struggle with this because we were created for glory. We were made to have dominion. We were made to rule. We were made for glory. I believe that our passage here holds the key. How do we get out from under the tyranny 
of empty glory. It's by knowing where real glory and real significance comes from. It's, where, it's, where, it's by knowing where a name is really made, where it really happens. How does one normally gain glory? This passage is probably one of the top five most important passages in the entire Bible. I say that loosely because it's easy for a pastor to say that a lot. But I would say along with Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis, well, and 3, Genesis 12 and Romans 8, this passage is right up there. And because the whole book of Isaiah is actually being quoted in this passage in some form or another, Isaiah 2. Um, it's an important passage because this middle section here, verses 6 through 11. And most scholars agree that Paul didn't actually write it. He's quoting it from someone else. It's either a hymn or a poem or a creed that someone else has made up that was recited as a way of establishing what we believe about Jesus. Being in very nature, God did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped and so on. Now why that's significant is because there's an objection. We can say, uh, well, first of all, this is one of the strongest statements about Jesus' divinity, being in very nature God. But the objection is, you know, this is probably something that Jesus never said about himself, but over many years as Jesus was upheld and, and dignified and, and, uh, and venerated, it's something that people started to say, that Jesus was in fact God himself, but Jesus was just a normal guy. Uh, he never would have said that about himself or anything like that. You don't see it in the Gospels. But, but the reason this is important is because this book is written around 25 years after the crucifixion, and this quote was written before that. So from a very, very, very early stage, the disciples were regarding Jesus as divine, having divinity, being one with God. It says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. Form isn't really the best word. It comes from morphe, uh, which we get metamorphosis from. But later you're going to see being in very appearance of man. Appearance is speaking to, or that word there, schema, is speaking to the outward appearance. But morphe is actually speaking to like the nature of a thing, the nature of a being. Not just the outward appearance, but in very nature God. That's the NIV translation. It works a little bit better. The argument is, if Jesus knew that he uniquely held a oneness with God that gave him the authority of divinity, why didn't he go around saying that? Why does it show up later? Well, if you were Jesus and you knew that you shared this identity as being one with God in some way, would you go around saying, hey, I'm God? Shirley MacLaine says that. Lots of people say that. And uh, it's hard to know what exactly they mean by that. Or would you begin to exhibit a kind of authority and power that only God himself should be able to have? So you have, for instance, an instance in, in Luke and a couple, in one or two of the other Gospels in which Jesus is speaking to a room crowded with people. And uh, the, there's a paralyzed guy and his friends lower him through a tile in the roof because there's no room to get him to Jesus so that Jesus will heal him. And he looks down and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. 
And everyone in the room is looking at each other kind of nervously going, mm, you don't say that. Uh, God does that. You don't do that. And Jesus kind of perceives their thoughts and he says, well, which is more difficult for me to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you'll know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, get up, walk, take your mat and go home. And the man gets up and walks home. Or when Jesus is, uh, when he calms the seas and that, you know, when they're in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, there's something really profound here that is easily missed uh, there's this huge storm. The apostles wake him up. They say, we're all perishing. Don't you care? And Jesus says, be quiet. And the wind listens to his voice. And the waves recognize his voice. No one else has ever done that. People appeal to God or God works through someone's actions on his behalf, but no one exercises their own power and tames the weather. Okay, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. Jesus says, Philip, don't you know me? Okay, so it's there, and it's important. Why is it important? Jesus was in the very nature of God. What does he do with that authority? That's what's important. In my mind, the picture that we get is kind of like Homer's Iliad or Odyssey and Odyssey. It's part of the same story, I guess. The story of Odysseus, who has authority in his hometown of Ithaca. He leaves his homeland, he leaves his beloved Penelope to go and fight in the Trojan War. And the adventure ends up lasting 20 years, but finally ends with his triumphant return to Ithaca in glory reclaiming his title and rescuing his wife by slaughtering all of her potential suitors. How does Odysseus achieve glory? There and back again, right? How does he make a name for himself? By overcoming the odds, by outsmarting the gods, vanquishing his foes. It's every Marvel movie, right? And now becoming every Star Wars movie, too. Disney, uh, he exerts his might and his power and his authority, and so he overcomes but in Jesus, the story is completely upside down. It's completely backwards. Though he was in the form of God, the nature of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself. Why is that so important? The original language actually reads something more like this. Did not regard the right to rule or lead as an equal with God, something to be exploited. The right to rule or lead as an equal with God as something to be exploited. The word is hegemony, from which we get the word hegemony. What's a hegemony? Anyone know what that is? It's when you have a government or a group of people or a nation who has political dominance and control over another group of people or another nation. Right? It's where hegemony comes from. The reason that this is so important is that this is the exact opposite of our own human history. These concepts of, of forming and, and naming things that you see all throughout here, uh, who was in the form of God and then made a name for himself, these have incredible Old Testament significance that goes all the way back to Genesis to show that what Jesus is doing is reversing what Adam did, and what we've done ever since. Jesus, being in very nature God, had the right to rule, hegeomai, 
as an equal with God, but didn't consider it something to be exploited. We, on the other hand, who are not equals with God, considered the right to rule as God's equal, something to be exploited. We reached for empty glory. And in doing so, we lost our glory. You see, we were, in fact, meant to rule to the glory of God. We're created for it. I want to I share with you an interesting passage. I know it's hot in here and people are falling asleep, so wake up. Uh, if you ever thought that Genesis 2, 18 through 20, is about God presenting Adam with animals as a potential mate, listen to this, because this that's wrong. Okay, but the, the, the scripture goes like this. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. You see the word formed. God formed the animals, just like he formed the man. The word named and called is used like four times in this one little scripture. What does it mean? Because at first glance, it's kind of odd. It sounds like it's saying, the man needed a helper, so I'm going to give him a helper. And then God proceeds to parade a bunch of animals before Adam to see if any one of them would be a suitable mate. None of them work out so well, so God comes up with women. You know, like, like God, this, this moose isn't really doing it for me. Can you do something about this? They're like, yeah, I've got another idea. We'll take one of your ribs. You know, well, that's great. You know, what, you wonder why people don't take Genesis very seriously. Um, no, that's not what this passage is about. Instead, the statement, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not a statement that's being answered by animals. It's being explained by the role that mankind was meant to have over creation that he was not able to take care of on his own. See, what's in a name? A name ascribes glory to something. Right? In the Old Testament especially, and even now, today, uh, names, a way of, to name something is to define and endow upon it its purpose, its significance, um, its value. So Adam isn't just going, this here is an Ancherancus Shuacha. It's king salmon in scientific jargon, right? right? No, the, the point is God is giving the mankind his own authority to rule, to endow, and to protect, and to be a priest over the significance of created things, to guard the life that is maintained on earth as a steward under God's authority, to rule over it, to the glory of God. And God says, you can't do this alone. It's not good for you to do this alone. So I will make a helper that's suitable for you. And so you have Adam, who is a form. His name means human. And God makes a woman. Adam names her life. You have the form and you have the filler. You have human and you have life. And now the form who is meant to be in charge of the life sustainability of created things has a partner whose name is life because she will be the mother of all the living. And now you have an adequate team to care for the dominion of the world. 
okay? In other words, it's not good for man to be alone. In other words, we are not meant to lead autonomously. Let me find my place. Psalm 8 says, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. We cannot exercise authority rightly apart from unity. That's the point. We cannot achieve glory if our personal glory is not laid aside. The serpent said, God knows that when you eat this fruit, you will be like God. You will be able to define what is good. God says it's not right for you to lead without a helper. I'm saying you get to decide what's right and wrong. You get to decide what's good and how you get to rule, how you get to have dominion, how you get to lead for yourself. We considered the right to rule as equals with God as something to be exploited. And where does our Philippians passage end up? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, a true human being, to the glory of God the Father, exercising authority to God's glory. Jesus has taken the throne that we got booted off of, We were ejected from a position of glory because we exploited it. Jesus has been placed on that throne. He has that position. But it's not good for him to be alone. It is not good for men to be alone. The church is Jesus' bride, the life of Christ that is his body. So that in standing firm and striving together in unity... The lordship and dominion of Christ is extended upon the earth once more and the life is being restored and the chaos and death and pain are retreating and being depleted. We are called to have the same mind of Christ and to assume that position. The odyssey from glory to glory It begins with Jesus having the right to rule in the nature of God and ends with his exaltation to the throne, having every tongue confess his lordship to God's glory. Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. He took the lowest position and he became nameless and surrendered his right to a name. And that's what a slave is, empty and nameless. But in the end, he's given the name above all other names and a position that every knee would bow before him. Jesus is born in human likeness, therefore God has exalted him, and the whole passage centers on this one central point. Being found in human appearance, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have that mind about you. Okay, but how does that actually change anything? How does that change us? Let's talk about coaching a little bit. We've all seen coaches that we admire, and we've all seen coaches that we really don't like, right? You can tell when a coach is in it for his own glory or his own name, and you can hardly blame them. 
Now, as one who is an assistant baseball coach for my son's league this year, I can relate to this because our team lost miserably. Okay, we ended the season. Our last game was a 15-0 shutout. Okay, it's hard not to take it personally. For some reason, when you have a position of authority, you seem to see your team as an extension of yourself. And whatever they do seems to reflect upon who you are as a person. Our head coach, I don't know how he did it, but he had an incredible amount of grace that allowed him to separate himself from that and to continue to make the game just about having fun for these kids. So my hat's off to him a lot. But we often see a different personality. We see coaches who are really trying to uphold a name. They throw their weight around as they make demands and discipline the team from their position of authority. So Mark told me a story this week. Mark is our marriage and family minister. He's off at a tournament coaching baseball right now. But he told me this story uh, of how uh, he's trying to really build character in their team. And, uh, and so they have this player who's really passionate, might have a bit of an attitude sometimes, and he got thrown out on base. And so this player storms into the dugout and he throws his helmet on the ground. And Mark, what does he do? He comes up to this player and he says, ooh, we're not going to do that here. Uh, I'm going to have to have you run a lap, so come on. Let's run to the foul posts and back together. And when he did that, and he ran to the foul posts and back for all to see with this team member, the parents and the bystanders, they all kind of noticed that. They said, wow, you know, people don't do that very much. Having a position of authority, he does not consider that position as something to be exploited for his own glory, but humbles himself. Every coach has a position of authority. One kind demands obedience, the other kind earns the respect of the team. One kind commands the team to follow, the other kind will gladly follow anywhere. What's the difference? What does the coach think about his own glory? That's the difference. I have to be careful with this because I'm a you know, story about my own son, um, but uh, our, our kids fight all the time. And uh, you know, I just want to be careful not to say something that they would be too embarrassed by. But uh, you know, my younger son knows how to drive my older son crazy. And so we had him outside, and they're kind of racing, but the older son always wins the races. So what does my younger son do? As they're coming back across the finish line, of course the older son wins. I win! And then the younger son slaps me on the shoulder and says, nope, it's whoever touches dad first is the winner. <laughs> and this drives the older son nuts. Like, he just goes off the wall. He loses it and goes crazy. And, and I'm sitting here as a dad, and I'm trying to figure out where is this coming from? And so my job, I've got, to, I've got to correct the older son. But whenever I do that, I stand in and, I, and I, I have the hardest time getting through to him because all he can see is what the other kid did wrong. You know, so, so I'm trying to tell him, hey, you can't behave like that. You can't let him get control over you. You can't let it bother you so much. You know, and, and basically as a distanced person of authority, I'm telling him how he should think and how she, he can act. But, and, but in his mind, he's like, dad does not understand. So he goes into the house and he pouts. And as we come inside, I see him sitting there. You know, he's kind of sulking. And I'm, I'm like, 
son, are, you know, are you pouting? You know, and I, I try to make light of it. But he says, he says, like, Dad, you take his side every time. You, you love him more than me. It doesn't matter what the issue is. You always think I'm the one who's wrong. You don't even think about what he did. And I started trying to reason with him. And he started getting defensive. And we're still just, just not really able to break through here. But finally I, started, I said, why do you think you feel that way? And I started asking questions. And I started saying, you know, I had a younger brother once. He drove me nuts. You know, I lost it. I did some horrible things to him. Uh, it's hard, isn't it? It's really hard. It's like, yeah, it's really hard. I just kind of can't even control myself, and I can't. You know, all of a sudden, he starts, like, breaking through. And, and I'm like, hey, come here, buddy. He's like, why? What are you going to do to me? You know? <laughs> I'm like, no, come here. And I, I gave him a hug, and he's, like, trying not to cry. You know, it's really, it's this emotional moment. It's kind of it's personal, but, but what made the difference? The difference is, the power is, that I took his struggle seriously, I took the struggle seriously. I entered into his situation. I didn't excuse the behavior. Okay, I'm not being permissive. But I pursued his heart. I didn't try to pres preserve my own name or my own glory. This is a small microcosm, but it expands all over our lives, right? One could ask, what's the big deal about this passage? After all, Jesus starts from a position of lordship and authority, being in very nature God. He emptied himself of status and name. And what does he get? A position of lordship and authority. So, what's so triumphant about that? What's, so, what's the big deal about that? Why is that so important? Well, as God, Jesus never lost anything or gained anything that he didn't have before. But as a man, on behalf of all humanity, Jesus gained everything. You see, God's nature has never changed. But now our approach to him has. Every religion invents some kind of law that must be followed in obedience to God's authority. God was always trying to get his message across, though. I don't just want your obedience. I want your heart. Jesus didn't just say, I've come to tell you that God says it's time to stop sinning or he'll make you run to the foul post. No, he came and he emptied himself and he said, I'll go with you. I'll pay your debt because you matter to me. Let's run there together. You become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's easy for us to say, I can humble myself and go and talk to that poor person in the soup kitchen, but when that person is like your own disrespectful child or some really awful person in the workplace or somebody who just gets at your glory, you know, how do you have the mind of Christ in that situation? Jesus did it for us because he showed us I'll go through this with you. I'll go through this for you because you matter to me. There are two kinds of responses to God. One that says, I will bend my knee because he is God and I have to. The other says, I will bend my knee because for a coach like that, I'd play on that team any day. 
Grasping at empty glory destroys unity. It destroys the team. But the means by which we can empty ourselves of empty glory is not because we are less valuable than we'd like to think we are. It is that God, that to God, we are infinitely more valuable than we ever dared even imagine. And when Christ's glory is exalted in us, we are restored to a rightful glory that God intended from the beginning. How do we apply this? Empty yourself today of empty glory. There are people, perhaps even in this room, no one even knows who you really are because in an effort to preserve your glory, you wear a facade all the time. Maybe you don't even know who you are anymore because you're trying so hard to preserve your name, your glory. Empty yourself of empty glory and let him fill you. It's the exact opposite message that you will hear in your surrounding culture. There was a woman who had a very abusive husband, ended in a nasty divorce, seriously wounded and damaged person. Started going to church. So maybe there's hope for me. Maybe there's some kind of resource for me here. And one of my friends began to, to know this person a little bit and kind of connect with them. But then they disappeared. And uh, later, saw her on the street. Hey, how are you? Where have you been? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Well, I haven't seen you in church in a while. Oh, I started going to a psychiatrist. They started telling me about... Um, promoting my power and elevating my, my you know, what, what's the word? I've got it written down here. You know, it's, it's pop psychology. It's positive psychology. Project your inner power into the world. Jim Carrey talks about this all the time. You know, if you just project your desired image of yourself and of the things that you want into the universe, it'll eventually become a, a reality and the universe will return that goodness to you. So just keep telling yourself that you're okay and eventually you'll just be okay. And that's the message we get here. It's the exact opposite of Philippians. Don't empty yourself. Find your little spark of glory and lift it up. Project your power into the world. The problem is, it never actually deals with the problem. It never deals with the question of self-worth and glory. In my dictionary of the, well, the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament, the way it defines the Greek word for glory, doxa, one of the quotes from it says this, thus the glory of man is human opinion and is shifty, uncertain, often based on error. What is my name attached to? What defines my significance and my value and my glory? It's really whatever I think or whatever someone else thinks of me that's going to define it. It's shaky. It's, it's fragile. So what do I do with that? You know, I can tell myself all day long that I'm a really good person and treat everyone else like a monster all day long. And everyone else is going to say, that guy's a monster. And I'm going to say, well, I'm a really good person. So the truth is, I'm a really good person. No, it's not. You're a monster. It goes on to say, but there is a glory of God which must be absolutely true and changeless, free from outside opinion. God's opinion marks the true value of things as they appear to the eternal mind 
And God's favorable opinion, therefore, is the truest definition of glory. For the most true and unshakable opinion to be a favorable opinion of you is where the highest degree of glory can ever be found. When we know that the opinion of our Heavenly Father is favorable, it settles the need to strive for empty glory that destroys unity. But if you don't empty yourself and exalt Christ, you will never have a name. Your glory will only be empty and shaky. On the other hand, when Christ is exalted in us, as Paul says, his strength is made perfect in my weakness. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, not my strength. We dare not hope for too little. We dare not discount the possibilities because this who is filling us is, after all, Jesus, and Jesus is, after all, God. So there's peace in that. Are you trying to be the tough guy? Does your child's disrespect reflect on your own glory and reputation? Are you trying to be the perfect mom? Are you embarrassed about the name that you're trying to preserve? What kind of coach are you? In the workplace, at staff meetings, how much of your conversation is vested in the preservation and opinion of others and upholding your glory? In humility, regard yourselves. Nope, in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you not look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Empty glory destroys unity. Lead to the glory of God with the mind of Christ because his favorable opinion of you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, is the most anyone could ever ask for. And so you don't need anything else. Let's pray. We're pretty blind, Lord. We're pretty blind to our insecurities. We're pretty blind to the moments when our conversation turns to our own preservation. When we disregard a good idea because it tramples on our own idea. We're pretty blind to the way we treat our kids sometimes out of preservation of our own worth and reputation and authority rather than their own good. We tell ourselves, well, they need to learn respect. They need to learn. It's for their own good, but we're blind. And God, we could try really hard just to empty ourselves. We could try to be better people. But nothing is going to shake the insatiable lack that was created within us, the need to have dominion and to rule. So now, reveal to us the places and the times in which we exploit our position for our own glory. God, we lay those times and those, we lay those needs at your feet now. 
confirm for us once again the coach who ran to the foul post with us. The God who emptied himself of glory in a name and became obedient to the point of death to rescue us. The only thing that satisfies that need is the coach that we long to follow. And a coach like that is a coach we long to follow. Because you didn't just tell us what to do, you showed us how much you love us. That changes things. Lord, if anyone's here who doesn't know that love, I pray they would find it today and receive it. It's in Jesus' name I pray as I ask you, Lord, reveal our blind spots. Empty our empty glory. Let us exalt Christ. Amen.